Um, well, look, we're going to keep on going. Um, right now as a church, we, uh, last week we just started a brand new series. Um, we are going to be working through a book together. And last week we started with the book of Daniel, which is either going to be really exciting or foolhardy. <laughs> because it's, we, what we talked about last week is it's one of the most complicated books in the Bible. Um, people struggle to know when it was written. Uh, scholars can't agree. It comes to us in both Aramaic and Greek, one of the only books of the Bible that seems to be written in two different languages. The dating and the timing is confusing. And the whole story about Daniel is it's this Jewish person who has lived through the most horrendous event, the fall of Jerusalem. He's taken captive and now has to live as a, pre as a person of God in Babylon a culture that seems so, so far from Jerusalem. And so it, it's a fascinating discussion around the complicated nature of our world and how does God work through complicated things to still bring his purposes to pass. So that's a little bit in a nutshell of where we went to last week. Um, so today we are going to jump right in. Um, normally I have a video to read out the text, but I don't have that sorted and organized by this Sunday. So we're actually, I'm just going to spend some time reading this text out together. We're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 1 verses 3 through 21. So if you have your Bibles, can I encourage you to pull them out and follow along? If you have a phone, you can do that too. If you Facebook, I won't judge you because I've done it. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've never done that when someone else was preaching. Not when I was a student, at least. Uh, we're going to be picking up in Daniel chapter, uh, chapter 1 verses, and we're going to read verses 3 through 21 together. And again, the story of this is Daniel has just been taken captive He's just finding his way through Babylon, and it's at the very beginning of his time in exile. So we're going to be starting from verse 3. And I apologize for my pronunciation of some of the Babylonian names. They're going to be uh, perfect. So in verse 3 it says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter into the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel, he resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief officials for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official uh, to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard um, who the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please 
Test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine that they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables instead. And to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And so Daniel remained there until the first, king, or the first year of King Cyrus. Let's just pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that even these stories from thousands of years ago, we can see your action. We can see your work in their lives. And it gives us hope for what you can do in our lives. Holy Spirit, as we engage with this text today, I pray that you would speak to us and give us hope about how you can work in our life, in our world, here and now. In your name I pray, amen. All right. So today's service is a sermon on the, pro, the, um, the great benefits of vegetarianism and veganism, right? Anyone signing up? So no more bacon because the Bible says you shouldn't have it and you'll be smarter if you don't eat meat, right? Yeah, Carl's out. That makes sense. That tracks. Um, <laughs> it's a fascinating story. And how do you wrestle a story like that from thousands of years ago about dietary requirements in exile to what that means for us today. Well, believe it or not, I think this text actually touches on one of the most difficult challenges that we as Christians face, which is how do we relate and interact with our culture? How do you interact with the world around you? How do you participate or not participate? So what's fascinating here is that um, on the surface, if you look at it, it's something about food and purity requirements. But when you dig a bit deeper, you realize this is a whole conversation about identity. So what Daniel and, and Daniel, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, because I don't remember their Jewish names, what's happening here is Babylon is trying to grow their empire. They're trying to build their fortifications all over the world and they need good rulers to fill in. They also need loyal subjects. And uh, usually the people that you conquered are not the most loyal to you, right? They usually have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder about like the pillaging and killing. And so what they're doing is they're trying to grab the top, the cream of the crop from Judean society, and they're essentially trying to assimilate them into Babylon, make them one of their own. And so they get put through this three-year program where they have to learn all the Babylonian things. They've got to learn their literature. They have to learn their maths their sciences, and what's fascinating is at the time, technologically, Babylon was more advanced than Israel was. It was part of the reason that they were so effective at defeating the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the empire that came before them, and why they're able to lay waste Jerusalem, is because technologically, scientifically you could say, 
they were actually a few steps ahead of where Israel was at the time. And so what they're trying to do, it's Daniel and his, and his friends are saying, come on in, we'll teach you the secrets. You'll become one of us. You'll learn how we think. You'll learn how we do things. You'll learn our stories, our sciences. And you hear that the name change is so significant. I mean, particularly nowadays, most of us know a name is really, really valuable, right? And imagine being conquered and having your old ethnic identity erased and replaced with a new one that fits your new culture. I mean, that's the story. Heaps of Māori had to face that very challenge here in New Zealand, didn't they? Of do they keep their Māori name or do they pick an anglicized name to function better in society? And so that is the issue that we're finding here. So they're learning all the sciences. They're learning, uh, getting themselves new names. And the whole purpose is to indoctrinate them to become faithful servants. Uh, one commentator says it this way. He says, uh, the purpose that Nebuchadnezzar was with Daniel and the others was to train them in Babylonian ways for political propaganda purposes. These members of the elite classes would become enamored with Babylonian ways and customs and then either return to positions of influence at home or stay in Babylon in important positions, perhaps even serving as quasi-hostages. And so the question that I'd love for each and every one of you to wrestle with is, if you were Daniel, what do you do? If you're there and you're trying to maintain some sense of your identity and your history, and you're getting schooled in all the Babylonian ways, what do you do? Do you go along with it? Because they've got some good things to teach you. Or do you reject it and push it all away and hold fast to what God has told you in the past? What would you have done? I don't know, I'd be terrified. I hope it'll never happen to me, honestly. This is the key question. And Brennan Breed, who's a commentator on Daniel, he just says it this way. The main question of this chapter is, how does one maintain cultural and religious identity while surviving in a dominant culture that threatens to undermine that identity? And here is one of the most fascinating questions that Christians face in the world today. And it's a question of faith and culture. I'm going to change it. You got it? You got it, Kim? You got it. Good. It's a question of faith and culture. Arguably the biggest question that the church faces. Because nowadays we, we, li we live in almost like a digital Babylon, right? Where we're constantly surrounded by new information, by our cell phones, by new Netflix programs. And each one is telling you a story about the way the world works. And all of us are facing thousands of competing narratives about what it means to be human, what the good life is. In New Zealand, it's to own a big house where you don't have to interact with your neighbors too much unless you really want to, and to have a job that you really, really love that's not too stressful but is always personal, personally fulfilling at all times, right? That's like the hope of the good life here in New Zealand. That's the cultural story that we're brought into. And as Christians, do we buy into that? Do we hold on to that? Or do we fight it tooth and nail? Honestly, the church has been fighting with this basically since, I mean, the church has always fought with this, but certainly since the 1960s, that fight has gotten more and more intense as society has moved faster and faster and changed more and more. And particularly in the last 20 years, it's even escalated of you get the fight. Do Christians capitulate to culture or do we fight it altogether? What's fascinating is when you look at the world, there's often one of two traits that Christians tend to do. And I talked about it a little bit last week of when things get complex, we can either try to protect 
ourselves and protect our identity, or we just kind of give it up and say, why does it matter anymore? But you see the same thing with Christians' responses to culture. And often when it comes to faith and culture, one of the things the church has prioritized a lot, at least in my experience, has been resist. Resist the culture. Um, so I grew up as a missionary kid. Uh, my parents were missionaries, so I grew up in Mexico City. And uh, so we went to a small missionary school, and most of my friends were all Southern Baptist uh, Christians. Now, Southern Baptists in America are very different from Baptists here in New Zealand. They're quite conservative in America. So all of my friends were very, very conservative. And my parents were kind of seen as like the raging liberals at the time compared to all the Southern Baptists because they let me grow my hair long. <sighs> Sinful, I know, right? The, the other thing that they let me do is as a teenager, I grew up right in the prime time of Harry Potter, right? And so as a kid, my parents decided to let me read Harry Potter. <gasps> now, I know there's mixed reactions here. Some people here still don't like Harry Potter. That's fine, I love it, we can still be friends, right? Um, I loved these books, and my mom was mostly just happy because I was reading. She's like, look, you're reading. I don't care, just read. And so I was reading these all the time, and what would happen is we would often get these missionaries from the States that would bring youth groups down to come and do like missions work and outreach stuff, and I would be like the local translator that would go around with them and barter and do all the deals. And often I was bored on these mission trips, so I would bring a book with me. And it was a regular occurrence on these mission trips where I'd be sitting in the back of the bus and the teams would be doing all this thing and I'd be reading Harry Potter. I'd be opening up Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. And uh, guaranteed what would happen is almost on every single missions trip, a youth leader would come up to me in a very loving but concerned voice. And he'd come up and be like, Con, what are you reading? <sighs> know what's coming. Harry Potter. Oh, oh, interesting, 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 interesting. Uh, cool, 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 And then he'd be, it was the weirdest conversation because he'd then be like, did you know, I mean, you can read what you want, but did you know that J.K. Rowling's express purpose is to try and bring witchcraft back and get all the kids in all the world uh, actively involved in witchcraft and wizardry? And I was like, man, I'm 13, I don't care, right? Um, <laughs> And it was like a regular occurrence of like these youth pastors would come and they'd be really, really concerned because in their perspective, and I don't, I don't mean to humiliate them because I know there's some people here that still have concerns about Harry Potter and that, that's fine. But their concern was I was capitulating to an element of culture that was sinful. And the challenge was you have to resist that, Colin, don't participate in that. And all of my Southern Baptist friends, that was like their main MO was, you know, I had kid friends who would never watch any Disney movies because Disney was trying to undermine the family. Um, I had friends that wouldn't watch any movies. Uh, in America, they have like the rating system. Their kids, even their teenagers, weren't watched, allowed to watch anything over the rating of G um, because that was gonna lead them into sin and it was capitulated culture. And it became the system where we began fighting any encroachment of anything that seemed to threaten our Christian worldview. And it was such a defining experience for me. And often, so much of our Christian response to culture is we want to resist it, because it scares us. And we feel like it's undermining our identity, it's undermining our history. And there's elements of that that are really important. There are really important moments to push, away, to push back against culture, right? 
they're really important moments to hold your ground and say, no, I don't think that is right. But if all you ever do is resist, and if your main mode of action when it comes to faith and culture and resist, where do you draw the line? When do you stop resisting? When do you get to say this far and no further? If you follow that to its logical conclusions, most churches would end up being like the exclusive brethren, where anything outside of our walls is a threat to our community. And is that a, the faithful way to be a Christian in today's society? I don't know. There are moments for it, but all the time. One of the biggest challenges that a resistance model holds is that A, it assumes that everything within our Christian bubble is God-ordained. But it, it's not always. I mean, history can tell us that point blank. We can go back through the pages of history. We look at missionaries here in this country. They did some amazing things. They also had some huge blind spots around race and imperialism. Now, they assumed everything within their bubble was holy. But it isn't always. The other danger with the resistance model is it assumes that God's not outside of our Christian bubble. One of the key themes that we're going to see over and over in Daniel is that God has given control over to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. God has ordained that they would be kings and rulers at this time. And one of the things that Daniel has to deal with is that God is working through a kingdom that seems antithetical to everything he believes in. And this is the danger when, if everything we want to do when Christians think about engaging with the culture, if our whole life is about fight, 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 then we're assuming that Jesus isn't on the outside of those doors already doing work. And he is. Constantly. God is constantly breaking our barriers and working in places that we think he probably shouldn't because it's a bit naughty of him to do that. So we can't just resist, but that would be one of the natural drives of Christians and culture. Does that make sense? One of the other, the opposite side of the pendulum, which I also see, is this desire to assimilate. That at all costs, we try to minimize the friction with our society. You can see this really clearly. Um, since the 2000s, 1990s, um, most statistics would say the church has been on a clear decline. Uh, most of us are familiar with that, right? So from having a lot more cultural power 50 years ago, 60 years ago, we've been on pretty much a steady decline, Baptists included, even in New Zealand. I think we're the, uh, we've had five years of straight decline uh, now as a denomination. And in the early 2000s, people began to get very concerned about that. They began to worry and say, the church is dying. We need to do something to fix it. And what happened is you gained this new movement of the church. They were called either the missional church or the emergent church. And one of the things that the missional and the emergent church said is, one of the reasons people don't come through our doors is because we're so Christian, they can't understand anything. We're wrapped up in so much tradition that people come in and have no idea what's going on. Our culture has changed so wildly that we're just dying because of it. And so their recommendation was, um, let's change and shift and move all the structures of our church to adapt to this changing culture. And so with the emergent church, you got all kinds of new forms of church, and they were really exciting, really, really cool. You had like card-making churches and churches that met in homes, and they just kind of like read liturgy and ate a meal. Like there were lots of really, really cool initiatives, because the desire was, if God is out there, let's minimize the amount of friction between us and the wider culture. And the more friction we can minimize, the more people will come into the kingdom. Like you understand that drive, right? And this would be a common drive amongst a huge portion of my generation, 
when it comes to modern faith conversations is if there's something that's out of step with the culture, we're probably the ones that need to change. And so our drive should be, if there's a moral position that's being challenged, we need to change that. This is gonna happen massively at the referendum this year with euthanasia and cannabis both being on the bills. There's gonna be huge discussions of what do we do? Do we do this? Do we do that? And there's a drive here to assimilate. Now there's something really, really good about that. Remember, the Babylonians actually had a lot of God-ordained knowledge and wisdom. Science is science and God can give gifts outside of the church just like he can in it. And so there's a lot to learn from culture, but there's also a danger of your whole drive being to constantly minimize friction with the society around you. And the emergent church faced that. And I, I struggle to say this, I don't want to demonize that movement because they had some great perspectives that we needed. But history shows since that movement started in the early 2000s, very few of those emergent churches last more than seven years. Very few. Uh, also, churches that would be seen to be, uh, I guess, more... I don't want to use progressive because that's not helpful, but churches that would be more in line with culture on all the different kind of views and uh, moral opinions. While you'd think theoretically they would grow because they fit the wider culture, uh, global statistics show that those churches are actually in the fastest rate of decline. The churches that are growing, uh, Pentecostal, which tend to be really conservative on a lot of those cultural social issues, right? So it's fascinating. It's not always a one-to-one. -one. So assimilation doesn't always work because it assumes that culture is part of the cure. So like they would say, look, the world thinks this. They don't like us because we don't agree with them. So we'll just agree with them and it'll make it better. But in that framework, modern culture, it's both the thing that's killing the church and it's also the cure that's going to save it. And it just doesn't work out that way. They also forget that in Jesus' time, he was rejected culturally. Not just by the Jews. We know he was rejected by the Jews and the religious community. But he was also crucified by the Romans for the challenge he posed to them. And the early church's story throughout Acts is they got persecuted by the wider culture, not just the religious culture. So the story of history is that the church has always had friction points with faith. And to minimize those is not the most faithful way forward. So if it's not just resist, and if it's not just assimilate, what is Daniel talking about here? Well, it makes us think of what Jesus said to his disciples. On one of the last dinners he ate with them, he said, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil world. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And as you send me into the world, I have sent them into the world. The phrase that we've often drawn from this is Christians are called to be in the world, but not of it. Participating, growing, being there as salt and light, but not always perfectly equal and in step with everything that our culture and our wider world is doing. And you can see this um, in that story of Daniel. He and his friends, they didn't reject everything about Babylonian culture, did they? When they're tested, um, look, they look healthier and better nourished than the young, who, the young men who ate the royal food. And so he took away their choice food and gave them rolls and vegetables to eat. And at the end of that set time, he talked with them and they found none equal to them. So in their three years, they learned a lot about Babylonian culture. They spoke, they spoke the language. They knew the stories. They learned the arts. They learned the sciences. And they could compete on the cultural level 
higher than most of the people who'd grown up in Babylon. But at the same time, they also resisted. The whole statement with food, it's not about dietary restrictions. It's not about um, keeping to this purity law. By rejecting meat and wine, all the things that would sustain you and grow you, it means that for them to look healthy and strong, what they're saying is that our source and our supply does not come from Babylon. Our growth and our wisdom does not come from the king's table. Our ability to function and work in this place, our source is not Babylonian. Only God can do that. Uh, one commentator, he says, Daniel and his three friends are in a process of preparation for service. Their minds as well as their bodies are being fed by the Babylonian court. If they prosper, then to whom should they attribute their development and success? Well, the Babylonians, if they eat all their food. However, by refusing to eat the food of the king, they know it's not the king who's responsible for that fact. Their robust appearance, usually attained by a rich fare of meats and wines, is miraculously achieved through a diet of vegetables. Only God could have done that. It's this beautiful, subtle act of resistance, eh? Where they're part of the culture, they're interacting, they're learning, but they also recognize that they are not from it. Their source does not come from Nebuchadnezzar. Their source and their being comes from God. So what does that mean for us? If we're not just going to resist, if we're not just going to assimilate, how do we faithfully be Christians or follow Jesus in the midst of a very difficult culture, in the midst of our digital Babylon? Well, look, there are three short things I want to finish on that can help us figure this out together. The first one is who is your source? Where are you feeding from? For Daniel and his friends, it was an intentional decision to say that our source and our life comes not from the king's table, but from God. You know, one of my least favorite parts of the week is I think it's on Monday or Sunday where I get my weekly report of the amount of time I've looked at this. Does anyone with anxiety now dread that moment? As you're like, I'm pretty good. I don't look at my phone. Three hours. What? I spent three hours, like this last week, I spent three hours a day looking at this thing. That's terrible. But this is the way we live, right? We're constantly surrounded by sources and information. Most of us have our alarms on our phone. And before we've even woken up in the morning, the alarm goes, we flick open the phone, we're reading and scanning current events, we're getting into some sort of theological debate on Facebook with some people that you haven't seen in 16 years, but some reason you feel compelled to do it. And then you're also checking finances in your calendar for the day, all before you've rolled over and said hi to the person you're sleeping next to. Like this is the, what source are we gaining from? How much Netflix do we consume? How much entertainment do we watch? Where is our source coming from? Where are you feeding yourself? Alan Noble warns, he says, the habits that we adopt form our desires, which drive our beliefs. And when those habits form desires for immediacy, superficiality, continual engagement, and instant gratification, we should expect our beliefs to reflect those desires. Daniel would say, at the core, where does your identity and your source come from? And he would remind us that it must come from God. And if it comes from God, are you living in a way that reflects that truth? Where does prayer fit in your daily routine? Fasting, devotions, 
reading scripture, spending time with God, if God is your source, is that reflected in your life? Daniel would remind you that if you want to be a faithful person living in the midst of a culture that can work well within it, your source cannot come from outside. It needs to come from Jesus. Where are you feeding from? The second question is one of walking together. When Daniel went through this whole process, he did not go through it alone. He has his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and together they have to navigate how to be faithful in the midst of a constantly changing culture, which is a struggle for us. Most of us know here in New Zealand and across the world, we are becoming increasingly polarized. The online world hasn't helped, as because now on our news feeds, you can block anyone you disagree with. Did anyone block anyone whose news feeds you couldn't stand during the COVID-19 pandemic? I did. Anyone else? You're like, I cannot stand their posts anymore. I'm snoozing them for 30 days. Now that helps you internally, doesn't it? You felt real good about it when you no longer saw, it's great, it was great. I did it too, don't worry, we're all terrible people together. But what happens when you keep snoozing people you don't like? What happens when you keep moving away from news programs that you disagree with? What's happened in society is we are moving into increasingly polarized spaces, but we cannot listen to the person across the aisle. We can't talk to the person who's 30 years younger than us. We write off the people who are 40 years older than us as just people who are just gonna die before we can move on. That's the way our society moves. But when Daniel's picture, we need each other. And my hope is that for us to faithfully engage with scripture, we need to listen together. Andrew Picard, he says, studying culture means going below the surface to understand the deeply embedded values that shape our ways of thinking and behaving. This isn't a simple process, as we're so shaped by our own cultural assumptions that we project meaning and understanding from one value system into another, often without thinking, which is another way to say we have massive blind spots. You and I can look at the same cultural question, whether it's euthanasia or cannabis or gender, sexuality, any of those hot button issues, you and I can look at it and see things from completely different perspectives. The danger is, if we don't listen to the people who disagree with us, then often we're going to get it wrong, how to be faithful to Christ in the midst of our culture. The church of anywhere should be a place where the old 60-year-olds, I mean, I mean, the young 60-year-olds amongst us, fixed it, didn't I? Can hang out with the 17-year-olds. A 60-year and a 17-year-old can get into a room and talk about the same difficult issue and listen together discern together how is God calling us to be faithful. Where the 60-year-old can listen to the 17-year-old and hear their perspectives, understand the reasons behind why things are shifting. And the 17-year-old can listen to the stories that have come before them and not just I pridely think that they know it all better. See, for us to be faithful, we need each other. We need to talk together and listen to one another. If the church is gonna be an effective presence in culture, we need to break the polarization that's plaguing our world, right? We have to, but there's no hope. Finally, fear not. Often questions of culture, like the youth pastor who was talking to me on that bus can make us very afraid. As a young person, you can maybe look at the conservative movement and feel really afraid that there's all these racists who are trying to like impose death on New Zealand through like neoliberal tax policies, right? Or if you're older, you can be worried about all the, these young liberals that are coming through and trying to bring socialism and communism into our country without understanding our traditional moral values. 
Daniel would remind us this, fear not. Because at the core of this whole discussion, Jesus is at work. God was at work in Babylon through Nebuchadnezzar. And if God could sustain Daniel and his friends in the midst of one of the most volatile cultures after losing everything that they've known and having to live as slaves in a foreign empire, and if he can sustain and work through them, he can be with us today. Whichever party gets elected in three months, however the referendums go, however the hot, whatever the next hot button cultural issue that's gonna make everyone change their profile pictures on Facebook, whatever it is, whether it goes the way you like it to or not, scripture would remind you to fear not because God is still on his throne and even Nebuchadnezzar's power has limits. So faithful engagement with culture, it engages culture from the conviction that the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. And it engages cultural study as a way of seeking after God who's redeeming and perfecting his creation and human culture through the Son and the Spirit, which is a way to say that God is at work, even in the parties you disagree with, even in the people who you don't like on your Facebook feed, even from all the groups that you vehemently disagree with, Jesus is still at work. So fear not. It's gonna be a challenge. And Dan, if I can invite the team up, we're gonna, we're gonna finish with a song. I know this is hard. I know discussions around faith and culture. This is one of the most difficult questions the church is gonna have to navigate in the next 20 years. People are gonna leave churches because of it, because we get it wrong, because we don't know all the answers. My hope is that like Daniel, we can find faithful ways of being Jesus' followers in the midst of our digital Babylon. And that here in this community, though we disagree with each other, because I know we do, we haven't gotten to the elections yet, we will, that'll be fun. It's our first one as a church. <laughs> We're going to disagree with each other. We're not all on the same page, but Jesus is at work here amongst us. And I believe that together, he can help each and every one of us to become more faithful followers in the midst of our digital Babylon. Even with the things that scare you and the changes that you don't like and the people you disagree with, God is at work. So fear not. There is a way to be faithful in Babylon. You can be faithful in Babylon. Where is your source coming from? Who are you walking with? And fear not, because God is with you. Can we stand as we pray?